Okay, I promised a part two to um, the Monday night class called Why is the Jew so hated? Um, so here is the, I gotta deliver on my promise. So um, yeah, it's not a regular time for a class, but let me continue. Um, in today's class, I would like to dedicate to the protection of the Jewish people here in Los Angeles. Um, should be a protection for all the Jewish people across the world, but particularly um, a protection to the Jewish people here in LA. Hashem should protect everyone all the time. Um, okay. So let me make a, an introduction. Um, if you're intrigued by the topic, um, why is the Jew so hated? Um, I've discussed most of the, the idea behind it in the previous class called Why is the Jew so hated? Part one. Um, and I will not um, dwell on that subject in this class. So if you're listening just because of that, I don't want to uh, be deceptive. I will not be talking about it uh, much. I will just say one word right now. The Jew is so hated because the Jew is the clearest channel of the divine in the world. Just by the mere fact of the, of the Jewish soul and God chose to express himself through Israel and through the Jewish people. And as a result of that, if one loves the divine and one loves God in a true, real way, then they have a admiration and a love for the Jewish people. And for those who have an allergic reaction to the divine, um, they will obviously dislike Israel and dislike the Jewish people in a very deep, essential way. And because the Jew is a reminder of God, in the world, and that's it. So if you find yourself disliking Jews and can't explain why, um, it is, one should probably do a lot of good, a lot of sincere soul searching. And, um, and uh, I would say repentance and clean, you know, bring yourself to a little clean place. So your reaction to God is not one of, um, of an allergy doesn't doesn't cause you to you know get hives when you see when you see Hashem when you see a Jew, because a Jew and God are intrinsically one. That's just that's the real answer. You can give all the explanations. Everything else is all superfluous. Everything else is external. That's what I'm saying. It's not that it might not be. You know, there could be excuses and reasons. Um, all the all the um, accusations against Jews and against Israel and all that. One has to ask themselves what's the real deeper reason because. You know we've been we've been persecuted and and um, and um, and um, hated and uh, throughout throughout our long history and there's always another excuse. So the reason is not the real reason. There's something deeper, and that's the truth. That's the ultimate truth, which I mentioned right now. So that's it. That's all you need for the answer. Um, and I dwelled in it in the last class. You can listen to why is the Jew so hated part one. Um, now in this class today, um, I'm just going to delve deeper into the channel. Why is the Jew such a deep channel for the divine? And that has to do, as I mentioned in the last class, um, that um, the, the soul is called the lamp of God. Ne'er Hashem Nishmas Adam, the soul is called the lamp of God. And this week's parsha is when you will light the lamps, referring to the high priest, the Kohen God, lighting, igniting the lamps means to illuminating the souls. Um, the souls of Israel were illuminated by the by the work in the temple when the when the Kohen Gadol lit the lamps. What is the illumination of the souls? So in last class we discussed 
that the nature of a soul is to gravitate to its source, just like a, a, that's why it's compared to a fire. A fire is gravitating to its source. It's always going upward. And so the nature of the soul is to seek spirituality and a connection to what is beyond the material physical world. Um, we all have gravitational pulls towards earthiness, but that's from our shell. Our external self is, is attached to and excited about and drawn to the material, the, the things that exist, the, 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 the chunky stuff, stuff that we can touch and are finite within time and space. Uh, that's, uh, that's the external draw that we have and that we all struggle with. But we all deep inside realize that that's not what life is all about and there is this transcendence. In other words, where we want something that we can't touch, that we can't, um, that we can't measure uh, with, 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 with the physical measurement because it's outside of time and space. And that's the spiritual quest of the soul. Um, that's why the soul is compared to a lamp because a lamp is always in an upward motion. It's always gravitating upward, which represents the idea, the quest for the spiritual. Um, but as we said yesterday, so what's the idea of lighting those lamps? Not yesterday, in the previous class. What's the idea of lighting the lamps? The idea of lighting the lamps is that many times the soul becomes overwhelmed by the physical existence. In other words, because our souls are not just operating with directly and interacting directly with the physical matter of our brain, I mean, the soul is not directly interacting with the with the with the um, with our yeah with our with our physical mind, physical brain. It is doing so through a, another type of spirit. In other words, we have two, the, the Kabbalists speak of two souls. We have a godly soul, that's the soul we were talking about before, that is entirely obsessed with the divine, with the godly, with the beyond the here and now, with the eternal, with the infinite. And then we have a, a spirit, a dark spirit, called an animal soul, in the terminology of the, of the Kabbalists and the Hasidic masters. And that animal soul is what connects the more spiritual, more transcendental soul to the body. So we would say something like this, the godly soul is encased in an animal soul and the animal soul interacts in the body. The animal soul is very much part of the world, knows the world, wants the world, and gets dragged into the physical pursuits and material pursuits. But being that our higher consciousness, our higher selves is contained within a lower self, so it's possible that our higher yearnings and drives get drowned out by the more immediate earthy consciousness. The earthy consciousness blocks the, the heavenly consciousness, the higher, more subtle yearnings of a deeper soul. And to the point that it almost like extinguishes it. So a person can go all their life and not hear their soul when they become obsessed with success and with making money and with greed and with and with um, all kinds of other lusts and physical distractions, especially if it involves sin and so on and so forth, which is, which is like um, an, an antithetical to the spiritual yearnings of the soul. So they block the soul, they darken the soul. So the soul needs a refresher. And that's the reason why you have the tzaddik, the great high priest, the great the spiritual uh, giant who has the ability to ignite the souls. In the time of the temple, it was the high priest who was the super mega soul. And today's days, we have the great, the great rabbi, the great tzaddik, and what we Hasidim call a rebbe. And a rebbe is a soul igniter. And he ignites a soul. How do you ignite a soul? You ignite a soul by attaching a soul to a mitzvah, either through Torah study or a mitzvah. These are channels in which you 
you, you kind of awaken us all. We discussed in the last class how the Lubavitcher Rebbe, for instance, sent out million, uh, all of his um, emissaries and, and, and encouraged all of his followers to reach out to other Jews who have kind of forgotten that they're Jewish and forgotten this higher, higher, higher calling in life and ignited them not through inspiration, ignited them through just asking them if they're Jewish, reminding them they're Jewish and asking them to do a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, that's like an igniter. It, it helps ignite the soul and awaken the higher yearning and the higher consciousness. And as we discussed in the previous class, we find that so many people, their journey back towards a life of meaning and, and, and uh, devotion towards a higher end was ignited by one encounter with one chassid in which they did a mitzvah and that mitzvah sparked and turned their soul ablaze. Obviously, sometimes more, sometimes less, because every soul is different and every soul's reaction is different and, and the like. And we pointed out last time in our previous class, I spoke about the idea of the midrash. This is really stated in a midrash. Hashem says there are two lamps, um, my lamp and your lamp. Your lamp is your soul. My lamp, Hashem says, is the Torah and the mitzvahs are called the lamp. It says in a, a verse in Proverbs, ki ner mitzvah v'tayra or the, the Torah is a ner and the mitzvah is a ner, is a, is a lamp. And Hashem says, my lamp is in your hands and your lamp is in my hands. Um, you keep my lamp, I'll, 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 I'll watch over your lamp. My lamp is in your hands means that God gave us a Torah to observe and mitzvot and, 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 and commandments. If we study the Torah and do the mitzvahs, we are guarding his lamp. We're keeping his lamp alive in this world. We're keeping observance and, 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 and um, godly actions alive in this world. And God then says, I will keep your lamp. I will protect your lamp. And that means more than just protecting our lives, that we should stay alive. Uh, obviously, it, it includes that, but it means something much deeper that we should remain spiritually alive because it's so easy to become so um, 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 overwhelmed by the distractions of the physical life of the, of the material world, whether it's family and other obligations, and then it's not necessarily our fault. It's just that we're living in a very, very um, draining society where in order just to keep up, to keep breathing, one has to like focus so much energy into it, which kind of robs a person of much time to spend developing and, and, and cultivating or nourishing or nurturing their, their higher self, their soul. And um, as a result of that, we can get swamped and, and overwhelmed and drained, spiritually drained. So Hashem promises we'll keep our soul alive. So um, in the last class I mentioned that although most souls need the assistance of the Torah and the mitzvahs just to maintain, as I called it last time, we called it maintenance, in order just to keep their, 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 their spiritual yearnings alive, intact. Um, but there are souls, we explained, that are super souls that no matter how much material, physical things, they can't extinguish their soul. That's where we find people that although for whatever reason they haven't been taught, they haven't been exposed, they don't have the tradition uh, because their parents or grandparents have already um, left the, 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 um, the ways of observance of Torah and mitzvot, but yet sometimes it's just this, this child that's born, with the, we can see on the child that they have this incredible consciousness of the divine, a very intense one. Even when they grow older, they're not like all other people that pursue and find a meaning and excitement in, you know, in, in all the 
material fulfillment, it just doesn't speak to them. They're, they're searchers, you see people. Some, once in a while you encounter a person that's an extreme searcher that's looking and seeking and needs something more to, to, for fulfillment. These are souls that are not extinguished by, by, the, by all the mud and muck and grime of the material world. And they maintain. So for these, so there are those that are in the non-observant world, if you might say, you can discover such magnificent souls that are burning for godliness, although they don't know the mitzvah. Obviously, if they would do mitzvahs, they would be so much more enriched and so much more fulfilled, but they don't know. That's that. And then you have so many people who are observant and do mitzvahs, but they don't need the mitzvah for the ignition of their soul because these are people as well whose spirit is so intense and so powerful. So um, yet we say that God says, if you observe my candle, my lamp, I will watch yours. Which means we have to say that even these souls are greatly enhanced and enriched. And as we spoke last week in the last class, not only are they, do they experience, do they use the mitzvah as maintenance, but bahalos chesaneris means when you will elevate the lamp. In other words, the mitzvah itself elevates the soul to a complete different dimension, to way beyond higher and higher and higher and even higher. So we need to understand what is this, what does the mitzvah contribute to the lamp of the soul? So I mentioned to you last week that I was going to speak about seven levels of enhancement or seven levels of attachment to God, one higher than the other. And here is where we're going to find the point of where the soul is not capable of reaching on its own. No matter which soul, it needs the enhancement of the mitzvah to reach the ultimate. So what we're going to really go through today, and again, what I am speaking to you today is stemming from a discourse of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, of the Rebbe, and this is in, um, it was a discourse the Rebbe said in 1969, Tavshim it's called Balois Chasaneritz. It's one of the edited discourses, fascinating discourse. I'm not teaching the discourse in the way that I would, I would teach a discourse, go through it. I'm taking the ideas of it and kind of presenting it. Okay, so it's, it's well worth to, to read the discourse. It's in Sefer HaMamarim Alukit Hay, or um, in the newer versions, it's obviously in the, where they divide it according to the months. It's in Sivan and Pasha's Bahaloscha. Okay, on this week's Torah portion. So um, just to, to lay out the outer framework, it would be something like this. Um, in the seven levels of connection to God, one higher and higher and higher, what we are going to measure, and this is, this is, this is what we are going to, this is what's going to increase as we move from level to level to level, is the self-transcendence. The beauty of the Jew, as we spoke earlier, the greatness of the Jewish contribution to the world is a display of the divine. And as I discussed last week, the display and the revelation and the channeling of the divine is always dependent on how much we move out of the way. That's the idea. The more we can, um, create, the more we can diminish our own ego, our own self-interest, and do something with the purer, the purer, the purer the motive. When we say the purer the motive is, the less, the less um, it is to satisfy ourselves, but rather a divine desire or a godly need or a godly want, 
um, the more it is focused on God's, what God wants, not on ourselves, or any benefit that we might get from the service, the purer it is, the more it is revealing of God. Ultimately, and as this is something I mentioned last week, that God, to really have a, a, the clearest presentation of God in this world, because God is and there's none but him, if there's even a tiny, tiny, little, subtle, subtle, subtle of beingness, other than the existence of God, it's already a hindrance. It's not really, it's not a pure channel. In other words, it will come in, godliness will come in. As you'll watch a person doing a mitzvah on this level, godliness will come in, but it is, there's a little static. For something to be the clearest channel, you can hear and see the divine in all of its purity, there has to be a complete, complete abnegation of self. In other words, we have to create the space for God to be. And the space for God to be means absolute space. None, no, no beingness of otherness in that. Because God's truth is that he, and there's nothing but him. Although he creates us and we exist, and we exist in his space, but we are, in truth, we, 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 our existence is completely him. We don't have an, any bit of beingness. He is our beingness. The space where we have an existence and a self, that's only in our own, in our own perception. Our own perception and consciousness gives us a self. But the way God sees it, from his perspective, is that we are swallowed in his existence, in him, and we are him because there's nothing, every cell of our being and every entity, every bit of our, of everything about us is nothing other than, than, than his input and his energy and his, and his being. So we are really him, nothing other than him. That's his truth. So if we want to reveal his truth, we have to enter into that consciousness of non-beingness. But that's a problem because the essential core... <laughs> reality of someone is that we feel is, is, is that we have a self so that self kind of contradicts so that's why I discussed last week if you remember in the class why in order to create the divine presence in this world it's not just enough to have a Jew in this world ultimately it's a Jew doing a mitzvah when the Jew does a mitzvah you have the ultimate display of God in this world and that's why we discussed in the previous class that uh, the, the person called a lamp we say the soul is called a lamp. Every 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 a person is a, is a lamp for God, but yet um, we said that the Zohar says that in order to have oil in your lamp, you have to. We discussed it, and again, I I'm I'm, I'm referencing you to the previous class. This class will be greatly greatly enhanced if you listen to the class that I've given on Monday night, because this is just part two of that class. Is the Zohar says that um, a person should. Um, 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 it's a verse that says a, a wise man his eyes are on his head so the Zohar says what does it mean here? a wise man his eyes are in his head it means that we're always thinking about our head the divine presence that resides on a person's head the body we discussed is a wick um, and the divine the, the Shekhinah that dwells upon us is the fire God is compared to the fire but in order to hold the fire on a wick you need oil and the Zohar says oil is the mitzvot so the idea that a wise man is always on his, has, the wise man has, is, 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 is thinking about his head, is that we are constantly think, um, 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 aware that we need to always do a mitzvah. Always do a mitzvah. Some mitzvahs that we do all the time, like we have a mezuzah on our door. That's a constant mitzvah. Or for a Jewish man, we wear tzitzis, the fringes. This is a constant mitzvah. 
And a person should study Torah all the time, have Torah memorized in, in uh, Hasidic teaching. There's a, there's a, even it's a mitzvah that we debarred upon the mat, you shouldn't stop talking Torah all the Even when you're walking on the street, have some Torah memorized. You constantly can, can think Torah and, and repeat Torah. Have a mitzvah all the time. Those that are very, very sensitive literally feel it. If they're not, if they don't have a mitzvah surrounding them, they, they, they panic because they feel the disconnect. They need to have, so we asked last time, why can't the soul itself be the oil? The soul should be the oil. Why do you do a mitzvah? A soul is a, is, 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 is a godly, it's, it's a holy being. It, it's, why can't that serve as the oil? So I gave you the answer that the Prashneer Zalman of Liyadi, the Alter Rebbe says, that a soul, how high the soul is, how deep its yearning and its cleaving and its desire for God can't utterly, utterly and completely transcend itself to the fullest, fullest, fullest. Because even when you're loving God, the very fact that you're loving is you. There is some other subtle, there is a film of somethingness. And because of that, it cannot capture what's the idea of oil? That's what we discussed last week. And I'm sorry, I keep on saying last week in last class. What's the idea of oil? Oil serves as fuel for a fire. How does it serve as fuel for the fire? By letting go of itself completely and becoming completely assimilated and integrated and becoming fire. That's the idea. The oil has to be consumed by the fire, combustiated in the fire completely. If the oil retains any bit of something, it can't serve as fuel. Because that's the whole idea of fuel. The fire needs to burn something, eat something up. That's why we said God is compared to a fire. Because to have a divine, God's beingness requires a for him to be visibly experienced in a revealed way and, and, and present within the world, it requires something to completely create the space, which means something to give itself completely to the divine without any trace of self left over. But the rule of every being is that it wants to retain its beingness. So oil has a unique, a unique quality that it's kind of God created it with the characteristics that it... it, it, it it kind of sees its own destiny as being lost in the fire. So it loses itself into the fire and happily goes into the fire. So, so um, we're saying that a soul cannot really achieve that to the fullest because when, even when it's cleaving to Hashem and it desires God, there is still a, a tiny bit, a little bit of, I want this connection. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little later. That's going to be the subject of today's class. The soul wants the connection. The fact that there is a, Somebody that's wanting, that's already a self. But when you're doing a mitzvah, the act of a mitzvah is completely God's. It's not you. Because while you're doing this, because God commanded. So this physical action is surrendered completely to the source. So in this action, God can, God can manifest. It's not your will, it's his will. So what are we getting over here? What we are getting over here is that to the degree that there is, to the degree that there is a, a, a transcendence of self in terms of one's relationship with God, to that degree God can manifest and reveal. Now, so we say the mitzvah is the ultimate because in a mitzvah there is a complete abnegation to the will of the creator. Because what's the mitzvah? Mitzvah means commandment. He wants and therefore it is. And the less you mix yourself into the mitzvah, the better it is. But obviously, and this is, this is the content of today's discussion, and that is we're going to measure 
obviously the motive in the doing of the mitzvah will make a big difference of how bright this mitzvah is in conveying the divine. Now we know that for thousands of years, Jews across, went and did mitzvahs across the whole world. That's why the entire world is purified already. That's why the Lubavitcher Rebbe said that we're ready for Mashiach. Because as Jews went and did mitzvahs across the entire world, everywhere, so it's every place of time and space, everything was impacted by a mitzvah. So we've already made the immaterial of this world um, ready to receive the divine because mitzvahs were done everywhere. But, but again, going back, although the mitzvah is the act of complete subservience and surrender and therefore a display of the giving, making room for a channeling and a, and a revelation of God through the mitzvah, the level of the person doing the mitzvah, in other words, their thoughts, their motivation in the mitzvah will make a difference. And here is where we're going to measure the, these seven levels that I'm going to talk about today, which are seven different levels of self-transcendence. Or let's put it this way. The first level is not self-transcendence, but it's still a possible motivation of connection to God. But the first level is not, not, not precisely Jewish. In order for it to be a Jewish experience, it has to have a self-transcendence. And the first level, although it is a spiritual quest and it is a desire to connect, and it could be a very powerful desire, it's based in self and self-serving, and therefore it's not Jewish, but we're starting with that level. Then we're going to talk six levels of, of transcendence of self, each one subtler and subtler and subtler and higher and higher and higher, getting rid of another level of a self that might be motivating and inspiring the service and the attachment to God. And therefore, they do not serve as the ultimate conveyor of the divine. And then we're going to reach the seventh level, which is the, the, the highest level of unity and therefore the highest level of communication. But, the, and, 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 and here's the thing, it's only for the last and final, final level that the soul is incapable of reaching on its own and it needs the mitzvah to propel it to that level. So when we're saying that a mitzvah is necessary, God says, you watch my candle, you keep the commandments and I'll guard your candle. The, 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 the ultimate meaning of that is, is to reach the, the, the fullest level of, 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 of uh, unification with the divine, the highest level, which means to melt away from existence completely so you're not in any way getting in the way of that revelation. That requires, that requires um, only for that level, the soul cannot reach it on its own. It needs the mitzvah. So let's see what that is. So first let's understand the idea of why these um, levels of, of self-transcendence are called the enhancement of the candle of the soul. Because again, and we reach the seventh level, that's called elevating the, the lamps. Ba'loz chasaneros, you elevate the lamps. So, it, just like we discussed regarding the oil, let's dis discuss in general regarding a lamp. 
This time we're going to analyze the psycho, um, psychoanalyze the fire, the flame. Now earlier we discussed that the flame, in terms of when we say a soul is a flame of God, we discussed that the flame is the divine presence, is God. And the, and, the, and, the, and the rest of the person, the person who is facilitating godliness is the lamp. And the lamp would be the, whether it's the glass container or the earthenware, whatever it is, whatever you're using as a container, the wick, the oil. Now we've given a class about that many years ago in Hanukkah. It's called the lamp, the wick, the oil, flames of God, or lamps of God. You can look it up on our website, mayon.com, really where, I, where I really went through all the details of the lamp. That's, we discussed it in a few, many classes, but particularly in this class. It was a Hanukkah class. Um, you can look at my website on holidays, look Hanukkah, and look for one that talks about, I forgot the title. That was many years ago, but it was one of the, I feel, very important class. Um, but, but, so that's, in that sense, we're saying that the flame itself, that's not us. That's already the desire. We want God to dwell upon us. But now, f- there is, in, in uh, Jewish mysticism, and one of the explanations of the idea that a soul is called the lamp of God, Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, in which we see the entire lamp as the person, including the fire. The soul is compared to the actual fire itself, not the divine presence resting on the person. Okay, so it's a slightly different angle now. So one of the reasons why we say that a soul is called a lamp has to do with what we discussed earlier, that just like a fire is in a constant perpetual state of restlessness. You take a look at fire, you see that fire is restless. Fire is always jumping and jumping. So when you, if you can psychoanalyze that fire, now if the fire would have a consciousness, now we all understand that fire does, is part of the inanimate kind of state of, of you know, it's, 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 so it, 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 it doesn't have a consciousness or a will of its own. But if we were to imagine the fire with a, with a, um, with a will, with a, in other words, the question is what's, motiva- what's motivating the restlessness of the fire? What's driving it? And if we can analyze it like kind of with, as if the fire would be choosing to act that way. That, that, that's what I'm, that's, that's what we're going to discuss. If, as if the fire would be choosing to act that way. Why is the fire doing that? What's constantly burning? What's creating within this fire this 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 this, this uh, constant friction and 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 unsettledness? So Rav Shneur Zalman of Liadi explains that that's the that's the and we, he says that 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 is actually the secret of of the of such a deep secret regarding the Jewish people and the Jewish soul is that well, is compared to a fire, the fire is the reason why the fire is in constantly in upward motion is because there is a source to the fire. And what's the source to the fire? The source to the fire is a, the, this, the, the, you know, let me, let, let me, let me b- backtrack for a moment. Um, we know that there are four elements, uh, earth, water, 
wind and fire. Okay? Now the four elements are stacked up one on top of each other. Now, again, we, this is a discussion that the ancient uh, um, philosophers talked a lot about the four elements and so on and so forth. And, uh, and according to their understanding, everything in the world is made up of these four mixed together, called the Dalad Yesodos, the four elements. But in addition to them all being mixed together, that means you can't find anything in the world that doesn't have a mixture. Any physical substance is made up of a mixture of these four. Obviously, very subtly, you can't, you know, take um, an, a, 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 a piece of a, a leaf off a tree and put it on the microscope and see the fire in it. You can see the water in it, but you can't see the fire in it, or the earth in it, or the wind in it. Not necessarily you would see it. But it's there. That's that's that. everything is composed from these four elements. Now, um, but in addition to that, they're also created independently, and they also exist in each one in their own state. So, earth and the way it works is they're stacked up one on top of each other. Earth on the bottom, water on top of the earth, um, wind on top of the water, and fire on the top. So, and it would be like four spheres, four, four circles. Earth is the heaviest, so it sinks down, it goes to the bottom. Water is lighter than earth, and therefore the, but heavier than the wind and the fire, so water encircles the earth. Most of the earth is submerged in water. And this that we have, dry land, which there's part of the, of the earth that's not submerged in water, that's kind of by divine commandment. That's what we find in the second day of creation. God says, let the earth let the waters, I'm sorry, in the third day of creation, on Tuesday, God says, let the waters gather to one place and let the earth be seen. So the commentators explain that the earth being seen means that kind of by divine decree, unlike the nature of what should be, that the earth should be below sea level, so some of the earth is exposed so that we can live on earth. Okay? Now, on top of the water and on top of the, and on top of the earth, where it's exposed, there is air. There's the oxygen we breathe, and so on and so forth. So there's the air. the air. Now, on top of that is the element of fire, but it's not a fire that we see. It's not a ring of fire surrounding the earth. It's not like we can look up and see this red fire surrounding the earth. It's the, it's the, uh, it is some kind of a, a source for fire. That is, now, again, I, I don't know in the um, what we would attribute that to in modern science. I'm not exactly sure, but this is what the this is the 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 the, the science of um, that is discussed in Maimonides and ancient philosophers uh, appreciated this idea. Uh, are we talking about some kind of a potential kind of a of a gas? I'm not exactly sure what it is, but on top of the ear, that's where fire comes from. When you strike a fire down here below, um, what you're really essentially doing is you're able to capture somewhat of that energy, of that fire, more metaphysical fire energy, and God enabled us to be able to trap some of that down here, draw it down, capture it down, pull it down in here. And that's how you created a fire, obviously because fire has such benefit. So we need to be able to have heat and fire and all that to cook and to, you know, whatever else that we need fire from. But precisely because of that, we'll explain the nature of the fire. 
Because the reason why the fire is constantly aflame when you capture it down here is, is, is dancing and, 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 and either way you turn a candle and turn a lamp upside down, the flame is always going up towards the sky, towards the heaven. The reason for that is because it gravitates to its source. That means this little flame is out of its place. It, it's, it's, its real true source is above the atmosphere, outside of the, above the air. So it wants to go back into its source. Now you have to ask the question, again, psychoanalyzing the, the flame. When it will go back to its source, what is it going to gain? Obviously, it, it so desperately wants to go back that it never stops. A fire never calms, calms down. If the fire calms down for a second, there's no fire. That's, that's, the defin, that's, the, that's the makeup of the fire, is this, this leaping upward. Um, so it's unrelenting. It doesn't stop for a second. And if not for something anchoring it down, that's the, the fuel, the wick that it's holding on to, it would, it, and what happens when a fire extinguishes, according to this, is that it does go back. The gas disappears and goes up. So Rav Shneir Zalman of Ligadid is again the founder of Chabad Hasidism asks the question, what is the fire going to, whenever you want something, you gotta ask yourself, why do you want it? Generally when we want something, it's because it's going to give us something, we're gonna get something out of it. We go to work, we wanna make money. We're gonna make money because when we're making money is going to enable us to buy what we need. So it's going to enhance our existence and that's why we're motivated. So every motivation that we're that we're that we're driven towards something is because we're there's some gain. That's all. That's so. The question is, what is the fire going to gain when it goes back to its source? So Rabbi Zalman of the Yadi says there is, and again, he's trying to explain why the soul is compared to a fire, to a lamp, to a to a fire. So he says, you know, when the fire is yearning to go back to its source. It's actually counterintuitive to the nature of all things. The nature of all things is that they want to preserve their existence. And preserving it meaning preserving it and grow their existence and enhance their existence and secure their existence and so on and so forth. That's instinctive. In animals and plants, they want to, they, they, they want to uh, bring about the preservation of their species, the continuation of their existence, and so on and so forth. He says the one striking, the one element in which we can see a total opposite feature is in fire. Because if the fire goes back to its source, it ceases to exist. Down here, it's eliminated completely. There is no fire. You don't have the flame. If it, if it would have its way and, 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 and extinguish and go, it's not here. There's no fire. And in its source, this particular flame doesn't either exist because in its source, it just becomes greater part of the greater fire energy, whatever that is. So it doesn't have an identifiable existence anymore. So what the fire is really expressing is a desire to not to be. And you don't, again, if, obviously, if we were to, and this is, the, this is what the fire is conveying, although Rabbi Shneir Zalman and, of Liadi is, is not saying that the fire is consciously choosing to do this, that it has a mind, but it, he, he's, just, he's just expressing from the fire, you get an idea. When you have something that is, that is moving towards its non-existence instead of towards its existence. 
And therefore, Shneir Zalman says, and that's not logical. And it was everything preserving its existence. That makes sense. Every being wants to be. And if it's motivated, it's motivated for itself. But, 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 but to want to be not, that's, that's, that doesn't have an explanation. And he says, well, that's the idea. It's not rational. It's not logic. But that's just its nature. And he says, what does nature mean? Nature means when you have something that is, is a term that is used, when you, when, when you can't explain something, you just say, this is what it is. <laughs> so there's no logic to it. It just is. And there, he says the reason why King Solomon compares the soul to a lamp. Because the motivation of a soul is also to dissolve in its source, to be not. And that's the, the greatness. And that's why he explains, the, I mean, he's talking particularly regarding the Jewish soul. And he explains that's the secret of, of the essence of the Jew. Is that the, the source of the Jewish soul is God. The Nisham is a piece of God from above. So the source of the soul is God. And every individual soul is a piece of God held down in a body, held down here in this world, a spark of the divine. And the soul, if you were to open, if you, would have to, if you were to really get into the nucleus of the soul and, and see what's there, you would see this fire, this transcendental burning and yearning for, for, for a transcendence of self to the point of non-beingness. The soul wants to attach itself to its source, and if the soul would have its way and be absorbed back in its source, it wouldn't be anymore as a soul. It would be in a non-existent state because it would be God, but it wouldn't have any, it wouldn't retain any of its previous consciousness of who it is and what it is. So that's irrational. So what the what the what what, what Rabbi Shneur Zalman of the Adi is really saying is that every Jewish person, man or woman, is inherently insane. It has an insane, super rational, and when we say insane over here, we mean not lacking intelligence, but above intelligence. This is a drive that's above intelligence. Intelligence can't, can't, can't grasp this. It's, it's, not, it's not based on intelligence. It's a motivation that supersedes intelligence. It's a core essential desire of transcendence. And that's why the Jewish soul is going back to what we discussed in the beginning, is a, is a conveyor of the divine. Because this, I mean, in practical sense, where do you see it? In practical sense, he says, you see it in this in Jewish martyrdom. The Jews stuck it out and being loyal to God and being loyal to the divine, notwithstanding all the persecution. And notwithstanding, in other words, at all costs, the Jew is going to hold on to God, even if it means taking away everything. And the proof that he primarily gives is that you know, in other faiths and in other peoples, you also find people that are very religiously motivated and care about God so much that they're willing to give their lives. But the, but the difference between how this was by the Jewish people and in the rest of the world is by in the rest of the world, it was primarily religious people who have devoted themselves religiously to a life of the pursuit of God. They gave their lives up. When push came to, they gave their lives up when they were given an ultimate choice. Give up on your religion. There were many um, um, saints saintly people who died in the blazing fires, either for Christianity or other faiths. So you do have people who sacrificed everything. But, 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 but the, what Rabbi Shneur Zalman of the Yadi points out, 
but what you don't find is that, they, that these people who sacrificed everything were people that were not religious or not particularly motivated all their lives. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they gave their life up. It's, if you were super religious, if you were a monk or a nun or a, or a priest or a preacher or, a, or a whatever, and someone told you you can't continue doing it, you have no reason to live anymore, you lost all meaning in your life, you'd rather die for the sanctification of God's name. But that, again, could be explained. But when it comes to the Jewish people, he says, there were, throughout history, we know that there were people that weren't religious, weren't particularly cared about anything Jewish throughout their life, and suddenly, when, they, when someone put the choice that they must convert to Christianity, shove the cross in front of their face, and try to drag them into, into church to be baptized, they said no. And even though they didn't, it's not like a person who came to synagogue every week and studied and learned and was particular. In other words, consciously, they were not in their, in their, in their, in their conscious world, there was not much um, religious, religious fervor or religious attachment or religious um, 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 care in their lives. And suddenly, they, they died. They were willing even to give up everything in their lives, their families, their enjoyments, their pleasures, and everything for their, for, in order not to, to, in order to remain Jewish. And even if the cost was the ultimate price, you're going to die. And they said, kill me. Why? If you didn't care about Judaism much, all your life you're into making money and having a good time. And suddenly now you're dying. How meaningful is God? And the answer is, he says, it's something intrinsic. It's the rest of the time they never felt that their soul is being cut off from God. But now they feel they're being cut off, they can't do it. Why? Because the, the lamp, the fire, the fire has to be attached to its source. It cannot sever from its source. That's the idea. It's a deep discussion. It's not for now. Okay. Why am I telling? Why am I bringing this in? Because we're saying now that the if the we're saying now that through a mitzvah you're enhancing your lamp. A mitzvah enhances lights the lamps. So in order to understand that the mitzvah enhanced the lamps. So we need to understand what is, the, what is the core definition of a lamp. The core definition of a lamp is the desire, in as much as it is symbolic of the soul, the core definition of the lamp then is the self-transcendence. So enhancing the lamp means enhancing the self-transcendence. That's the idea. That's all we are, I was working with until now. In other words, when we can enhance and deepen the self-transcendence, meaning doing something that is not beneficial to yourself, something beyond yourself or something completely beyond you. So when, when that can be enhanced, which means, what is enhancement in that means? Deeper transcendence, which means letting go even of the tiniest little, little vestige of self, that's, the, that, that's called enhancing the lamp. Becoming more not, not becoming more yeah. <laughs> okay? And that means enhancing the Jewish experience. So let's now go back, not to dying for the sanctification of God's name, but to living for the sanctification of God's name. And let's speak of the various different motivations that can motivate a Jew to do something godly in this world. So let's start with the simple. As I told you, we're going to go through this hopefully pretty quickly. And here's the idea. Um, 
the first motivation in any religious observance of anybody, again, this is not only for Jewish people, this is for the whole world, and billions, of, probably hundreds of millions of people, or maybe even in the billions of people, to some degree have some religious experience in their life and some things they do because of their faith and belief in God. And they're doing it kind of to enhance their attachment to God. Whether it's saying a blessing or giving charity or doing something good. And particularly doing it from a, from, from a more religious, from a, from, a, from, a, from, a, uh, uh, from a religious perspective. I mean, there are people that do nice things just out of a humane kind of a feeling, and that's fine. I'm talking now particularly in a religious context of people doing things because they want a connection to God. So it could be done, obviously, and the simplest of level is where it's self-motivated. Self-motivated is, um, and let me just, that itself can have many levels, but the general is that what you're doing is because you want to gain something for yourself from your relationship with God. Simplest of levels is you have a faith and a belief that God controls the world, and since you would like to get certain blessings in your life, someone is ill in the family and you want them to have a, to, to, to have a healing, and let's say, it's a, in, particularly it's in a case where um, the, the, the naturally uh, there is a problem, the doctors are giving up, so you need a miracle. So you're thinking that if you befriend God, if you get on God's good side, then God might provide a miracle. The only one who can help over here is God who transcends nature. So obviously you have a strong faith in God. You need an angel to come down and help you. And God is the one who calls the shots <laughs> amongst the angels. So uh, in order to have that, you want to do something nice for God. Now the, the Talmud speaks about that. Whoever, someone gives charity and he gives charity, he says, so my son will be alive. My son is sick. That's a possible type of an observance. Or you want that God should watch you. You shouldn't get sick to begin with. You want to be in, good, in God's good graces. So you want to do a mitzvah. So you want to do good deeds. Or perhaps a little more subtler, but also self-generated. You want to go to heaven. You recognize that life on earth is short. And we live here a certain amount of times. And you recognize what's going to happen afterwards. And you believe in an afterlife. And you don't want to, you know, thinking about hell and darkness and you want, or obliteration and you want to continue existing in some spiritual state, in some blissful state. And even when it comes to heaven, there's many, 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 many levels of refinement of understanding. You know, some people are looking forward for the, like in Islam, for the 70 virgins. And that's the highest type of good they can, they're thinking of. And then there are people that have a more sophisticated understanding. Like Maimonides talks about spiritual life that is not physical at all, and it's a whole different realm of pleasure. The pleasure is experiencing the ecstasy and the bliss of knowing the divine. So you see, but in the end, bottom line is, you want something out of it. You're serving God, not for God. You're serving God, so you will get something out of it. And obviously we can understand that from our relationships, in terms of our relationship, someone buys flowers for his wife because he's hoping that his wife will be kind to him and nice to him, or he wants to get her attention, he wants to have uh, whatever, uh, physical intimacy with her, and he figures that if he buys her flowers, she'll pay attention to him. So <laughs> he doesn't like his wife, he doesn't care about her, he wants his own, his own, his own pleasure. 
So what is that? That's self-serving. That's nice that he's buying her flowers, nice that he's doing something nice to her, but it's not about her. It's like someone eating fish because he loves fish. You don't love fish, you love your fish. You, <laughs> you love yourself and fish tastes good. That's what it is. Someone says, I love fish. If you love fish, <laughs> you would take care of the fish in the aquarium. The fact that you love, that you love fish, if you say you love fish and you eat fish, is because you love yourself and fish tastes good. It's possible to do the same thing with your wife, with personal relationship. I love myself and you taste good. Or it's possible to do the same thing even in religion, even with God. I love myself and God tastes good. It's good to befriend God. This level, on no matter what kind of, 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 of motivation, but again, it's a fulfillment. It enhances my own existence. This is the first level, and I would say, you know, um, uh, it's probably, um, I would say, 90% of all religious observance, or 80% at least, across the planet, again, uh, you know, is, is, is motivated by some kind of a self um, um, enhancement, which you will get, which a person, a believer, believes that they will have and gain something from their religiosity. That kind of a behavior is not coming from or related to, particularly to the Jewish soul. I'm not saying that there aren't Jewish people whose religious experiences are on this category. Actually, <laughs> a lot. And when I say a lot, I include myself in that as well. We constantly are thinking about our own benefits. But the question is, is that motivated by our Jewish soul or is that motivated by our animal soul that is kind of, I mean, part of it is motivated by the Jewish, by our higher soul, by our higher consciousness, by our spirituals, by our more... But the message that the soul wants to serve God becomes murky, becomes kind of polluted, if you could say, when it's going through the animal soul. Because it's the animal consciousness that's thinking about self-enhancement, not the soul. So, but when the inspiration of the soul to pray, to do a mitzvah, is being, it, it starts off in the soul, but we're not conscious of it until it kind of gets, it enters into the other spirit, the darker spirit, which, which processes everything through the lens and the experience of self, self-gain, it puts a personal gain to an inherently um, 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 pure desire to connect to God for something beyond self, but by the time it enters into our mind, by the time we crunch it in our brain and process it as information, it's already murky, it's muddy from self-interest. And therefore, even by Jews, it's very possible, not just very possible, I would say most or very much of our observances of things could be self-motivated, self, self, um, self-enhancement. Um, and in many circles, it's not even, people are not even comfortable, uncomfortable with that. That's like very open. We, we, they're, 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 that the motivation is, you know, you're doing a mitzvah, so you will go to Olam Haba, you will have a future world, you will. But again, that, that has nothing to do with real Jewish service. Now, the sages say we should do mitzvahs even f- with ulterior motives, because in the end, we will hopefully reach a point where we will do them for altruistic reasons. We should do things for altruistic reasons. We should start. Actually, it's recommended. Even if you're not transcending yourself, it's still good to do. 
And the deeper Hasidic interp- meaning of the way the Hasidic masters look at it is not because tomorrow you will hopefully eventually reach a point when you can serve God because God wants to be served, but rather because even deep inside your ulterior motivation, if you look deeper, maybe even to a point, maybe in a point when you're not, maybe, maybe even in a point where you're, where, where you're not conscious, you're subconscious, deeper inside on a more core, core level, um, your, your, the motivation is really, is really for the right sake. It really is for the right sake. It's not for self. So it's only a self-interest that is, that, is, that is covering up on a more transcendental desire. Okay. But again, this is called level number one. What? I'm doing a mitzvah. I'm learning Torah. I'm doing giving charity. I'm doing something nice. I'm looking to gain something. And again, as we discussed many... Sometimes it's so coarse that it's, you're not even thinking of a spiritual gain. You're thinking of a simple gain. You want your name you know, plastered everywhere as being such a great philanthropist. So that has nothing to do with anything spiritual that's personal, a, a gain. You might do something nice because you just want recognition. So that's already below, below. But I'm talking already, even when it is motivated for God, it could be that... I love myself, and I'm going to gain the biggest gain from God. Okay. Now, the next level is already getting into the Jewish experience. And that is the Jewish soul, which is compared to a lamp, like we discussed before. When the lamp, um, when the fire of the lamp is attaching itself to its source, as we spoke earlier, it's not gaining anything it's actually obliterating itself. So it's not for an enhancement of self. So what would that mean in our service of the divine, in daily service? It's because when I'm doing a mitzvah, not because I want to one day be in heaven and experience the afterlife and experience eternity and I want something. Actually, I can't explain what I want at all. I just know I have to do the mitzvah because I want to be attached to God. And why do I want to be attached to God? I don't know, even know what's motivating to me to be attached to God. I just cannot not be attached to God. So again, I cannot not, I can't sever my ties. God wants something, I can't sever my connection. So it's like the flame holding on to its source. And it's not thinking of some kind of a benefit. It's not even that it's going to be delicious when I'm attached. Because in order for it to be delicious and experience, you still have to be separated. In other words, if you become swallowed by God, you don't enjoy anything because you're, you lose any, any vestige of the previous existence. Even if you enjoy, it's not you enjoying because there's no more you there. So that's... A, 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 a type of an attachment, an observance, a motivation that transcends a benefit. You're not looking for a benefit, any kind of a benefit. It's like, you know, if, if there is a mitzvah and God commands me to do a mitzvah, I have to do it. Why? I can't explain why. I just can't. I, I, I can't. If I don't obey God, I'm severing. I can't sever. I have to remain attached. Am I gaining something? It doesn't matter to me. What I'm, I just can't. 
That's the idea of an, it's a very high level, right? But that's, that is transcendence. You're transcending yourself. But look at this. This is already Jewish. This has to do with the Jewish soul. That's what I mean, it's Jewish. It's a unique characteristic of the Jewish soul that is, that is a piece of God from above, and therefore its desire to cleave to God is beyond its own personal interest and its own personal enhancement. So this is really, really, really holy. It's really godly. And when you're doing a mitzvah like that, it's so not about you. It's about, it's about Hashem. It's about God. God is asking you to do the mitzvah. I cannot say no to him. Why? I, I just can't. I'm too attached to him that I can't say no. Transcendence. And that's a nature. That's what we're saying. It's not, a level, it's not, it's not something that we have to attain. It's natural to our Jewish soul to be that way. That's the nature of every Jew inherently. Again, it's possible that we cover up our own souls that we don't feel it. That we're not in touch with that, with that motivation. But the motivation is really there. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, and this is awesome, he says, mm, that's good, but that's the outer layer of your Jewish soul. That's not, that's not the inner layer. Why? In other words, in the lamp of our soul, that's the outside of the lamp, not the inside of the lamp. Why? Because after, if you really, what's the motivation? The motivation is, I can't sever myself. I can't sever myself. I can't explain why I can't sever myself because I'm not gaining anything by by the attachment, because again, the attachment is not for a, to boost my existence. It's not to boost my existence, I just can't sever. But ultimately, when I'm doing the mitzvah, it's because I can't sever myself. So it's about me. <laughs> it's because I'm so attached to you, so I can't say no to you, and I have to do it because I can't sever myself, but it's about myself not being severed from you. So there is a self over here. Understand what I'm saying? It's a self. And that self, so when the mitzvah is being done with that kind of a motivation, is it purely God or is there also a film of self? So the Rebbe says, slightly there is a film of self because I feel my need to be attached. Not a logical need, but a super rational need. But it's still my need to be attached to you at all costs. So when I'm doing the mitzvahs, because you need the mitzvahs, because I need to be attached to you by doing the mitzvah. That's the point. It's not because God, God gets something out of the mitzvah, or because He wants the mitzvah. It's because I want to be attached to you, and through the mitzvah, I'm attached to you. And if I don't do the mitzvah, I'm severing to you, and that I can't, I can't be severed from you. Even if I will never enjoy it, doesn't make a difference. I just can't be severed from you. So there is a self there, other than God. So it's not pure what we call bittel. It's not pure abnegation. There is a vestige of beingness, of self, in that, even in such a high level of observance. 
That's level number two. Even two, even level number two, as we said, has some self. No, level number one for sure has self. Level number two has a self as well. From here we come to level number three. And the Rebbe says an interesting thing. He says that in Tanya it says, again, Tanya is the book of his great-great-great-grandfather, fundamental book in Hasidism, in Chabad Hasidism. So Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liyadi over there psychoanalyzes the soul. And he's... He, and he explains the idea of how the Jewish soul has a, has a self-transcendence mechanism implanted in it, and that's why it's called the flame of God, and that's what drives people to give their lives up, to go all the way for God, without a question of what am I getting back, as we discussed earlier. But the Alter Rebbe, Rav Shneur Zalman of Liadi over there, explains the reason we have such a transcendence to God, such a devotion to God, is because our souls... Um, we, we inherited it from our forefathers. We didn't do anything to have this. Uh, you're born with this. We get it automatically from our genes. Our great-grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, and, 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 and Jacob, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and our mothers, Sarah, Rebecca, um, Re, um, Leah, and Rebecca, and, and, and Rachel, or Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. It's these super mega saintly people who achieve the highest level through their own work of connection to God. And that's what, because they were so high, they merited to bring such a state of attachment to their child, to all their descendants. And channel their spiritual DNA into their children. So we have it as an inheritance. But, the, but, but over there, again, he's basing this on Zohar, I think, in which he explains that the main merit that we have, we're born with this, with this ability of self-transcendence, is really related to the fact that our forefathers, the patriarchs and the matriarchs, were considered, what the sages use a term, were considered to be the, the chariot of the divine. The chariot. Which chariot is a vehicle. That's what the sages say. The forefathers, they are the chariot. So because they were a chariot to God, so therefore they handed down and passed on to their, all their offspring a unique soul that is so surrendered to God, so attached to God. Therefore, this, our Rebbe, this, our Rebbe, says, he's learning deep, and he says, if our inheritance of our forefathers, of our soul, as a lamp of God, is due to the fact that our fathers were chariots to the divine, merited to be the chariot of the divine. That means that in our surrender and in our devotion and in our dedication to, to God, which is inherently part of the DNA of our soul, it contains within it the characteristics of a chariot. So by analyzing the idea of a chariot, we'll understand the degree 
of attachment that our souls have to God, which is deeper than what we said before, the idea of the lamp, of the fire, seeking and wanting attachment to its source at all costs. Because again, as we spoke earlier, that is still a self. It's not a self in the terms of an enhancement of self, but it's still a self where I want. I want, I can't explain why. I don't have a, a personal benefit, but I still want something. I want something for me. And what's the me? The attachment. Not the perks that come with the attachment. It's not I love, so I might say something like this. This is what Rabbi Manus Friedman speaks about a lot, so this would be um, a good example. It's not I love you because of the perks that come along with you. I love you because I love you. I just want you. This is the level, level number two. I love you, which means I love God, not the perks that come from God, not my enjoyments of God. I love God. And therefore, at all costs, I, I love you. I want to be with you. But, but, so what's, what's, the, what's the downside? What's the negativity? In addition to God, there is someone loving God. And, they, and if I'm doing a mitzvah like that, I'm doing the mitzvah because I love. Not because God said, I love God. And by doing the mitzvah that God said, I am, not, I, I am, I am, I am preserving that love. So it's still about me. Okay? So, the, so now we're saying that if our love to God and our attachment to God is derived from our forefathers being a chariot, we have to say that in our intrinsic inherited love that we have to God, there is something deeper than the candle. Why? Because what's a chariot? Let's see. Why have our forefathers called a chariot? The idea of a chariot, the idea of a chariot is the idea of a vehicle. What's the idea of a vehicle? The idea of a vehicle is that um, a vehicle has no will of its own. It has no will of its own. Okay, let's, 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 let's take, a, you know, you have a car. Your car has no will of its own. Your car, you drive your car. Where does your car go? If your car is on Wilshire Boulevard, <laughs> unless someone else helped themselves to your car, but generally, um, if your car is on Wilshire Boulevard, is because you are on Wilshire Boulevard or parked your car on Wilshire Boulevard because, unless someone borrowed your car. I mean, usually. I'm talking about not a case where you borrowed your car or, or lent your car somewhere or sorry or whatever or gave it to your kids. Your car, you're the only one that has the key. If it's on Wilshire, it's because we know that you want to be on Wilshire. It's not that the car decided that it, you know, in the afternoon it wants to hang out on Wilshire or it wants to go be going down on the 405 freeway, or it wants to be at Disneyland, or whatever. The car doesn't, doesn't do anything of its own. A car is devoted to the, the vehicle, is devoted to the rider of the vehicle. And if, if you made a left turn, and the, 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 the sign said no left turn, and you made a left turn, and the cops pull you over, you can't say, well, you have to talk to the car. The car went left. No, because the car doesn't go anywhere that you don't want to go. If, if the car went left, it's because you turned the wheel. The car is obedient completely to us. And really, think about it, the car becomes so obedient that it's like instantly, it's, 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 it's like, go, stop. And it happens, it's, you're not even thinking. The car, it's almost like your par, car con, is like a continuation of your limbs. I'm talking about not when you're, a, when you're, when you're a, 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 a amateur driver, you just started driving, then... You know, there's a, a, a little bit of a thought 
before every before after the blinkers on after you know there was that I remember just a few years ago I went to Australia and I was driving a car it was actually in Tasmania <laughs> I remember how, how how hard it was because I'm sitting on the other side and I have to be so conscious of of the turning because I'm the, you know the drivers like in England on the other side of this it was, it was very painful <laughs> the experience of needing to be so conscious in every act that you're doing self-aware of what you're doing but once you drive for 20, 30 years and it becomes like the car is you and you're the car. That's how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how our forefathers were so surrendered to God like a car. They, 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 it was a vehicle. Whatever, they, all their life, all their movements, it was only surrendered to what God wants. Um, so, the Rebbe Zalman of Liadi says, where do we get an intrinsic love to God in our soul that we spoke about earlier? That's because our forefathers were a vehicle. So now let's analyze again the vehicle. Does the vehicle have, does the vehicle serve, serve the rider because the vehicle ha has an appreciation of the rider? Do you find like this? Let me put it this way. You buy a car, and in the early time of the car, the car is not necessarily always in the mood of like taking you where you want. Uh, you know, turn the engine, it takes for a while the engine to go on, and when you tell it to go left, it kind of is stubborn, and eventually. And once you get to know your car a little better, and your car gets to know you, and the car kind of has decided that, you know, you're a really good guy. You're really worth it to be, to be your vehicle. And the more the car breaks in and appreciates who you are, the car starts um, um, becoming more, more sensitive to what you want and more uh, responsive, if you can say, to your will. Obviously, we know it's all ridiculous. That's not what happens. Because the car never goes because the car has a choice in where it's going. You're imposing your will on the car, and the car is going. The car is just an instrument, an available tool. It will move wherever you're telling it to go. And it has nothing to do with its appreciation of you, that because of that, it is surrendering itself more to you. That's the idea of the vehicle. The vehicle has no will. So in that sense, it's different than the fire that we spoke before. The fire wants to connect to its source because there is this drive in the fire. The fire wants to go up to its source. Yes, it's not going to enhance the fire and benefit the fire when it's going to get there because the fire is going to get lost. So you can't speak about an enhancement, but after everything is said and done, there is a will in the fire. Again, if we can psychoanalyze a fire and what the fire is showing, that it wants to go to its source. The vehicle is beyond that. The vehicle doesn't want anything. The vehicle is not sensing the driver and because of that it goes. The vehicle, it's the will of the driver that's imposing on the vehicle. And I think when we say vehicle, obviously we can also mean horses and the horse or the donkey or whatever it is that's pulling the, the horse that's pulling the wagon. It's also the same thing. The horse is not being a horse and schlepping or pulling or towing the, the, the wagon because the horse has an appreciation of the person that's... Or, for example, let's say, you know, you have a, a horse and a buggy and there is a rider of the horse and the buggy. Is there a difference to the horse if the rider... Obviously, there is that. The idea that it, when it talks to animals, especially horses, that they get to know the coachman and there is a relationship over there. However, it, 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 it really, it's, it's, it's because it's kind of, you know, 
a horse is created that way, that it should serve, you know, Hashem made certain animals to be of the utility of humans. So the horses kind of have no problem being, and when you sell your horse, okay, it might take a few days just that the chemistry between the owner and the horse connect, but it doesn't have to do with an appreciation of the value of the owner. To the horse, it doesn't make a difference if the owner is a great scientist who's using the horse, who's using the, the, the carriage and the ride to go to a great scientific conference in which the, the, the biggest breakthroughs of medicine are being discussed, or if it's a big entrepreneur business who's going to make major business in a certain fear, and that's why he's riding, taking the rider there. Or if it's a great Torah scholar who's going to study Torah, and therefore he's traveling to a place. Or if it's a mafioso guy, a gangster, who's going to commit cr crime, and he's taking the wagon out for something like that. All that doesn't make a difference to the horse. Because the horse is not even motivated by its own motivation. It's being imposed upon. It is surrendered to the to the rider, and wherever the rider goes, it wants to go. It's almost as if the horse has no will of itself. Of course, the horse will get food, and because it gets its food, it might have some personal thing. It thinks if it's going, it will get fed, fine. But in general, the vehicle idea is that there is no love from the horse to the owner in which is motivating its, its, its uh, travel, its, its service. Its service that it is doing is because the owner is driving it. Okay, so now we're saying our love to God is an inheritance from our forefathers that they were a vehicle. So therefore, the Rebbe says, we have to say that one of the characteristics of our love to God, that in the characteristics in our love to God, has to be the ingredients of vehicle. So that elevates us to an, a higher notch in our subservience to the divine. And what does that mean? We spoke earlier of when we're motivated because of our soul to do a mitzvah because we want to be attached. So that's a, a, that's a, a, a very noble kind of a love, but it's still a love it's still, I am serving myself in this, in this thing. I want you. I don't want anything of you, but I want you. It's still my want. So when I'm doing the mitzvah, it's because I want the attachment. Here, if we're, the, if we're adding the vehicle element of it, the vehicle element is the ride that's happening is not because of the horse. The ride that, even though the horse is the one that's doing it, the motivation is because of the rider, not because of the horse. So now, back to the love. How about if a human being is doing mitzvahs and serving Hashem and doing godly things, but that motivation in that doing is not so that I should be attached, but that you, God, should have what you want. Which means I am driven with such passion and with such drive because I want one thing. I want God's name to fill the entire world. And by me doing actions of, that are in service of God, I am spreading God's name in the world. I'm so devoted. I'm so excited about God. I want, and it's, again, it's not about me. It's not about me being attached to Him. It's about God having a kingdom in this world. And therefore, every mitzvah that I do, I'm expressing His kingdom, His name, spiritually, whatever. It is, it is emerging. It is, it is revealed in the world. And that's my excitement. 
So it's a more, trend in the love itself, it's a more transcendental love because it's not about me being attached. It's about, it's not about me at all. It's about you having your name out there. Or sometimes it could be another motivation is because ultimately we know that God wants to have a home in this world. And every mitzvah that we do prepares this world for God having a home in this world and it draws God down into this world so that he can have a home in this world. And this becomes my obsession. I'm obsessed with God having a home in this world. So it's his interest, not mine. In that sense, it's the same like a vehicle. Because I'm not, I'm hallowed out of self, just like the vehicle is not in it for itself. It's in it just to actualize the will, the will of, of the rider, not its own will. So here, it's already a transcendental, in transcendence itself, it's a transcendence of transcendence. Pretty neat. Yeah, it's not a, I, I, there's no vestige of me there at all. The only thing is, I'm the one doing it. But other than me doing it, the own motivation is not for me. Because I am motivated because I'm driven with such drive. And I'm, I'm talking about someone who's doing mitzvot with passion and fervor and fire and energy. But that energy, what's, what's, what's getting you out of bed? What's causing you to work hours and hours for the sake in, in your re, 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 religious fervor and your observance and your connection to God? The motivation is purely so that God will have something. It's like a husband who doesn't care so much. What's motivating is not that he's you know, doing something beautiful for his wife. But that she's happy. That's it. He, all he wants to see is her happiness. Not even the fact that he's attaching to her. It's that she's happy. That, that becomes his concern. She has what she wants. Or she has the same kind of a feeling, mutual feeling to him or whatever it is. So that's a very pure love. Level number three. But the Rebbe says, level number three is great, but it's not yet. It goes higher than that. The reason is, because unlike the vehicle, where the vehicle is being driven because of the rider, because of the rider is driving the vehicle, when we're speaking of love, we're saying, in a human love, we're saying, I am, I am motivated and I am driven because I care so much about your happiness. I care so much about your happiness. So the husband who's running to get, he, 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 all he, he's getting flowers for his wife. All he wants is, is to see her joy. He wants her to be happy. She'll be so happy when she has flowers. Every time she'll come into the kitchen or the dining room, she sees the flowers, she'll be happy. And he quells, he delights in her happiness. But let's understand something. When he is running down the street because the store is closing, let's say he knows the florist is closing, and he's racing out, he's got 15 minutes, he's got to run, he's racing like a maniac, running down the street to get her the flowers because he wants her to be happy, okay? Let's say, it's again, it's not because he's expecting something in return. He just wants, it's her birthday, and he wants to see her happy. Nothing for himself. So in this action, you're saying, what's motivating the action? Who's filling the action, her or him? Her. It's her happiness that's driving this action. Yeah. But what's driving the action is someone who loves her happiness. Yes, all he wants is her happiness. So he's all about her. And all he wants is her happiness. But it's someone loving her happiness. 
So the drive is still him because he loves to see her happy. So again, he's loving, not so that he should be attached to her. He's loving her and her happiness. So it's a very, very refined love. It's a beautiful love. You couldn't get more beautiful romance than this. Such a, such a, noble, such a nobleman. Amazingly beautiful, but there's still a self. Because after everything is, is there, if we, were to, if we were to, if we can see the energy, imagine if we can see the energy, would we see him or would we see her? We would see a him, we would see a magical husband, we would see a beautiful man, that's what we would see, a beautiful man that's, who, who is so enamored by, by, by his wife and he cares about her so much that he transcends himself, but we're still seeing him. Because the Rebbe says these are the words. He says, every time there's love, there is self. There is someone loving. So again, in the first case, you're giving the flowers because you want something in exchange for flowers. You couldn't care less about her, about anything you want, your fringe benefit you're going to get from getting, from getting her these flowers. So that's self, purely self. In the second case, where you don't want anything, you just want to be attached to her. That's what you want. So it's not about anything you're going to get from her. It's about her. But you want to be attached to her. In, th in case number three, you don't want yourself being attached. You're not in the equation. You want her. But it's still you wanting. It's still yourself. You want. So in our relationship with God, it can still be an expression of self. So here we come to stage number four. Stage number four is where there is no desire. There's no self at all. Oh, that's like, wow, that would be like the ultimate. And that is um, a servant. A servant serving a master. When a servant serves a master, it's similar like the, it's similar like, like or when you say a servant, you'll say a servant or a slave. And that would be similar like the vehicle. Because like the vehicle pulls out of the parking lot, not because the vehicle decided. Or not because the vehicle appreciates, the horses appreciate the value of the master or where, what they're doing or where they're going and they want to be part of it. They're going because someone is imposing their, his will upon them and that's why they're going. And that's why the vehicle is going. A servant is the same thing. A servant obeys his master because he has no choice, because his master is his boss. He knows that way. He knows that he is a servant to his master. His master tells him he must go, he must go. So even though the servant is the one who is actually doing the service, the drive and the motivation and the force that's propelling the servant is not the will of the servant, it's the will of the master. And the servant, I'm not talking about a servant who really is like, you know, it's just afraid, he's, everything he's doing, he's afraid he'll be punished. That's again a self-perseverance. It's not even about punishment. He, his identity is that he's a servant. That's who he is. Whether he's enjoying it or not enjoying it, irrelevant. His identity is that he's a servant. So when a servant does something, when a king has subjects and they're doing something, and they're the subjects, they're the servants of the king, it's as if the king is doing it. It's not even noticed that servants are doing it. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's the king doing it through his servants. Say, the king built this palace. The king built this palace. His servants built it, but it's as if the king built it. Because the servants are just executing his will without any personal anything in it. Because it really does, it's irrelevant if they love the king or they don't love the king. They are his servants and they have to do it. 
So the Rebbe says, since our, our love to God, that we have an inheritance from our forefathers, is derived from the fact that they are vehicles, that they were vehicles. So we have to say that in our love for God, even though we call it love, even though we call it love, embedded in it is something even deeper of self-transcendence, more than love. Because where there is love, there is self. And since it's coming from a vehicle, and a vehicle has no self, so we have to say that if we strip the love, if we peel away the love and get to the nucleus of the love, we find that there is also an element of servitude that we have inherited from our fathers, not just love. In other words, deep, deep in the love, you'll find a servitude. In other words, why am I doing it? Why am I serving God? It's because, because I'm a servant of His. I, 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 the yoke of God is upon me, and therefore I'm doing it. Again, we might not look at that as so beautiful because we might say, oh, that's like, it's so, it's so much nicer if you can do it because you're motivated and you're inspired. Maybe you're right, but in terms of revealing God's truth in the world, God's beingness, again, as we're saying, the less ego, the less self that's there, the purer the channel is. So a mitzvah that's being done because God said so, and for no other reason, not because someone is excited to do God's will. It's not about someone deciding to do God's will because they're excited, because then there's something else over there other than God. It's just pure. The will of God is motivating the mitzvah. In that sense, my hands, my feet are a vehicle because I'm a servant of God, and a servant and a vehicle are pretty much the same. It's the human vehicle. And this too, we have inheritance from our fathers. Fourth level. A level that transcends even the most subtlest of love, even the most transcendental love, is servitude. However, the Rebbe's, and, and even this, we don't need the mitzvah to put that into us, to instill such nullification. This too, the soul has it organically within itself. It's just very deeply in, embedded in the soul, not necessarily that every human being, every Jew feels that way of birth, <laughs> for sure not. You need a lot of work to come to this state. This is a tzaddik who feels that way all the time. That God, that God is his master. He has hollowed out. He has no will of his own. No, not at all. Because he's uncovered that dimension of his soul that his identity, his or her identity is, I'm a servant. I'm a servant. There is no will. Beautiful. But the Rebbe says, let's take a, a microscope and analyze this very carefully. Very, very carefully. Mm, there is a little bit of self there as well. Why? Because why are you a servant? You're a servant. Your identity is service of God. But why are you a servant? You're a servant because you elected to be a servant. You chose to be a servant. It's like someone, the king is a king, and then the king needs servants. And um, someone who recognizes and admires the king and wants to, you know, wants to live his life in service of his, of his country and is enamored by the incredible greatness of the king, shows up to the palace, knocks on the door, and he says, subscribe me as a servant. I am, and what does it mean? I'm give, lifetime, not just for me, my children, my great-grandchildren, my entire, I am giving myself over to royal service. Once this person is subscribed into the king's army or into the king's... Um, servants, uh, you know, list. They're a full-fledged servant. They have no will anymore of their own. 
But there is always the, the notion, if you're looking deep, say, what brought them to this state of such servitude, the fact that they came in and said, I want to do this. So, there is, so even though right now there is no I, but the very fact that there is no I, that itself is based on a self. You chose to do that. Once you chose to make yourself a servant, You can't say there is no self there at all. There is only the master. There is a self. See, when the Jews were at Sinai, the Jews said, we will do and we will hear. The famous words, Nasa Venishma, we will do and we will. And this is so, this is so incredible. God got so excited when we say. In other words, they gave themselves over as complete servants to God. Just like a servant. You don't get to decide what you're going to do. A servant is ready to serve his master. No matter what, whatever you ask me to do, I'm here at your service. And that's what the Jews willfully said. And God got excited. He said, who revealed to my children the secret? What's the secret? We mentioned earlier, the secret is the deep. In other words, God says, who revealed to my children this secret is the secret of their own souls. That they are, that, in other words, they, till now, they, I knew they loved me, and they were conscious of their love to me with such deep love, because they have an inheritance of their father. But the secret of that love transcends even love, like we spoke earlier, it's servitude. That they're willing to, to hollow out completely to me, to surrender themselves completely to me so much. That's, that's how we see that this too is included. This level of subservience is also included from the sages we can see, the Rebbe derives, that this too is included in our, in our, in our, in our inheritance from our fathers. That's why God says, this is, but this is locked. It's, it's concealed. It's a secret that we reveal. But now it's revealed. Who revealed to them? What did God do after they subscribed to, his, to, to being servants of God at Sinai? You know what God did? God took the mountain and he held it over their heads. And he said, if you accept the Torah, good. If not, I'm going to bury you over here. So everybody cries and everybody says, hold it, this is crazy. They just displayed their deepest desire to, to, and surrendered themselves completely. We will do what we will here. We won't even think. Whatever you want, we're here at your service. There is, it's not about our motivation. It's about your will. Whatever you ask of us is the highest servitude. So why is God holding a mountain over their head? So the Holy Baal Shem Tov explains exactly what we were touching upon right now. And what does he say? He says, yes, when you are being my servant because you chose to be my servant, then there's still a little vestige of self over there because after everything's said and done, we chose to, to lay ourselves down to the service of God. So there is always, when we, when we analyze any action, it will always be, it's God's will, but there is a self because, the, because I elected to be in this state. So, and if we take away that election that you elected to do that, f the whole thing collapses. There's no, there, there's no, there's no, you know, I'm, I'm not showing up here. I'm only showing up because once upon a time I subscribed. So even if it's 3,000 years later. But the fact that at that day at Sinai, we the Jewish people, because we witnessed the miracles, because we saw all the good that God said, we elected to say to God, we will do and we will hear. There's still a little bit of our election in it. 
That's why God says, no, you're going to be my servants, not because you elected, but because I am imposing my, my, my mastery upon you and you're my servants. So it would be the difference. Let me explain the difference. There's two types of servants to a king. One servant is a servant who showed up to the palace, knocked on the door, and signed up for service. The other servant is a servant that was born a servant. Why, was he, why is he a servant? Because his father and mother were servants. And why are the father and mother a servants? Because they're, they're five generations already servants. This servant did not elect to be a servant. This servant is a servant. He's a born servant. It's a much deeper service. That's why God held the mountain over our head and imposed his will upon us. Why? You would think that. Why is that necessary? The point again, for the Jewish people to serve our function in this world so that we can convey God and nothing other than God when we do a mitzvah, there can't be anything other than God's will coming through us. If there is even the tiny little bit backdrop of self, even if it's so subtle that it's a once upon a time we elected to be the one, so there is... In the action, there is a choice made based on a motivation of self. We appreciated, we decided that it's good to be a servant of God. We're, there is a thin film of otherness other than God's will in this action. It's not a complete conveyor of the divine. So again, now we're holding already. This is level number six. Why? So let's see what the, what the six levels were. I am doing it a mitzvah because I want to make a lot of money. God, I'm doing a mitzvah for you. You're going to be nice to me. You're going to bless my, my business. Very personal gain. As we said before, that's not necessarily the Jewish soul. Level number two, I love you so much, God. I must do your will because I want to be attached to you. That's, that's level number two. Level number three, I don't care about me being attached to you. I care, I am motivated because I want you to be happy. I love you so much, I want your happiness. I want you to be comfortable. I want you to have your satisfaction of your will. Transcendence of self, but as we said, it's still self. I love, I am doing, I am driven because I want to make you happy. So there's me in there. Number four, servitude. I'm a servant. No self. I'm doing it because you commanded I am doing it because you commanded. A servant has no will of his own. So there's no me at all. You want, it happens. But I elected to be a servant. Number five, God holds a mountain over our head. I'm not even electing to be a servant. God forces me to be a servant. In this sense, there is no self at all. Complete servitude. Nothing seems to be the highest. Still not it. I'm sorry, I kept on saying there are seven levels. Actually, I realize now it's six. This is the last level. Level number six is the last level. We're going to transcend even being a servant. What's there to transcend even being a servant? Now let's understand something. Even this level that we're talking about now, a servant and a complete servant, a servant that does not have a self in the service at all, is not something that we gain from the mitzvah because you see that God held the mountain over our head before he gave us the mitzvahs. And we became his servant. It was an introduction to the mitzvahs, but it's not a consequence of the mitzvahs. So we have to say that even that level, 
which is such pure servitude, and therefore such transparency, and such dissolvement of ego and of self, and that level, if we can continue doing mitzvahs that way, in a way that it's just God's will, that we're totally His servant, our entire identity is His servant, and not even because we chose it, but because so it is, such purity, even that comes before the Torah is given to us. Once the Torah is given to us, and we do the mitzvahs, the mitzvahs now enhance our servitude and our, and our channel and our surrender and our oneness to our Creator to move even beyond this fifth level and reach into the sixth level. So what is that? And here is, here, is, here, is, here is something so amazing. Here's the last point. And that is, even if I'm a servant and... Um, Whatever I'm doing is because my master tells me to do nothing to do with me. I'm not motivating the action. I'm not inspiring the action. I'm not driving the action. I didn't even, I didn't even consent to be a servant. I'm just here because I, I, I have no choice. This is it. I've been, my, my great-grandparents subscribed me into this. I didn't do anything even to want this. There's no me here at all. It's just my master. So high in the sense that there's, so, there's no self there. But, yeah. My service is of value. My service is of value. And um, what do I mean my service is of value? When the king is... is, 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 is um, has a, a has a palace and he's got you know his servants. He has different groups of servants. Some do janitorial service. Some do um, management service in the palace. Some do um, gardening. Some do are are in the king's army. Some of the runs running the king's stable and his, and his wagon and his ride, Calvary things. Some are, and which ones are doing what? Each one is doing their qualities that they possess and what they have. In other words, that you have something to contribute because of who you are and what you are. And some are working in the kitchen because they are, nor, they are great cooks. That means that even though they're all servants and they're all not there because they even chose to be there, they're there because the king has, they're his servants and everything is being done is completely bypassing their choices and their wants. They're showing up every day to work because they have no choice because the king says so and everything is being done, it's all considered the king is doing. Yeah, but these guys are, have architectural and building skills and these ones have gardening skills and these ones have this. So there is something of their existence that is now contributing and enhancing the kingdom. So in that sense, there is an importance to their existence. So when we see an act being done, you're seeing two things. You're seeing the king's power, the king's beauty, the king's all ability and all of his servants and so on and so forth. But if you're analyzing it carefully, you're seeing the, the, the artistic skills of the craftsmen of all these servants. So there is something other than the king that's there, and that is the skill. The fact that the two are servants, but you couldn't do this job, and you couldn't do Judaism, means I have to recognize that you're the king's acrobat, 
And when the king wants uh, entertainment, you're the one who's leaping and doing it. And it's obviously that draws attention to something other than the king. It is part of the king's beauty and part of the king's wealth and part of the king's greatness that he has all these millions and different of servants and so on and so forth. And you're one of them. But, but there is something of value that what you're bringing because of what you're bringing. In other words, I notice not just the service, I notice the servant. The servant is also something. It's it's. There is quality. There is the service, and there is the servant who's doing the service. The Rebbe says the highest level of servitude. Imagine if the king has, just imagine, I mean, it's hard to obviously, it doesn't say this, but that's the way I'm interpreting it. Imagine if the king has a group of servants that are the most devoted to him. They're like the highest. This is like the highest of the high. And they're invisible. They're literally invisible. They have no, no, no revealed presence. And what do they do? They make roads. They build buildings. They build bridges. They paint. They, they garden. They, the actions are being done, but there's no one doing it. In other words, you have the service without the servants. Just the service. That is pure king, nothing other than king. Obviously, it's hypothetical, because <laughs> meaning we don't have that. Or it's the nighttime servants who work in the dark, in the sense that no one even pays any attention to the person doing it, only in the morning the work is done. The anonymous servant, that's the idea. The anonymous servant. Over there it's about the service, not even that it got done. Because when it got done through the servant, even though the motivation is not, it's not a highlighting, but there's still a quality in the person doing it. So the Rebbe says the ultimate motivation and the ultimate state of bittel in a Jew is when the mitzvahs get done through the Jew without even the Jew doing it. I don't mean that he's not doing it, but he has no feeling of him doing, of him being there at all. It's God's will happening through us, not that we're even a doer. There's nobody doing it, it just gets done. That's the ultimate bittle. That type of bittle we don't have in our souls on our own. At the best, if we dig out the soul to its deepest point, the soul is a servant that was born a servant. But there is still something there in the fact that you're... That we get from the mitzvahs. The mitzvahs transmit into the soul a level of, a level of transcendence that goes beyond the capabilities of the soul that we, we don't have it in our inheritance. Now why does the mitzvah bring us such self self-nullification, such self-transcendence, the ultimate level of bittel. How do the mitzvahs have this quality? So the idea is the mitzvahs themselves are surrendered to God on this level. The mitzvahs are humble. The mitzvahs themselves, the commandments themselves, are in a state of complete nullification to God. And let's explain why. One thing about the mitzvahs are, the mitzvahs are God's commandments. So it's God's will. But then there is the content of the mitzvah. 
What is happening through a mitzvah? So every mitzvah has what is happening. An animal horn is being blown, shofar, Rosh Hashanah. A hut is being built on sukkahs. A cracker is being munched on, on Pesach, and that's the matzah. A lamp is being lit on Hanukkah. Leather straps are being turned on a human hand, on a head and a hand. Fringes are being worn. Okay? This is what's happening in this world. So things, the mitzvah has tzedakah, that's for sure. Something, a, per, a hungry person has been fed. That's, there we can understand and appreciate the value of it. So here's the thing. We also understand that in addition to the physical value in this world, for example, the shofar reminds us to do tshuva, right? So it has a content. The, the matzah helps us remember to have faith, food of faith, because we ran out of Egypt quickly and we didn't wait, and every mitzvah has its quality, and so on and so forth. But in addition to its physical qualities, they all have spiritual meaning. In the higher spiritual realms, every mitzvah has its, is, is, a, is a channel for a unique divine energy or whatever. Okay. Then let's understand something. The main part of the mitzvah, number one, is not the spiritual dynamics in the spiritual world, because that's not what God wants. They're repercussions of the mitzvah. What God wants is the physical action in this physical world. Now, I, I, I would to ask you a simple question. The sound of an animal horn being heard, the sound of the shofar, not too sophisticated, it's not incredible music, it's just the sound of a shofar being heard in that world. Whatever reason you can give to it, an explanation you can give to it, what that means, if you are to value that compared to the fact that God, an infinite being, wants something, it's the will God wants. God is eternal, everlasting, infinite, boundless. The sound of the shofar that's going to be heard in this world is an animal horn that's going to go, doo, 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 doo. it's going to last for how long is the sound actually there for? So it's going to disappear. An animal sound in the physical world is what you're producing. The one that is asking for this is God who is eternal, everlasting, ever was, always will be. And to him, all of creation, all of creation, all the spiritual cosmos, all the way, and then for sure the physical world, is nothing of nothing. He created it all with a speck of a speck of a speck of a speck of his infinite energy. Nothing. And the physical world is really nothing. And this one animal horn and this one tiny little sound, how significant is it? So what does the mitzvah feel? The shofar, the commandment, the lit, let's, let's imagine the mitzvah has a consciousness. It is, it, is, it is a tiny little movement in this physical world. How does it feel? Is it like, wow, a magnificent thing? It feels tremendous because it's doing God's will. But in terms of the quality of what it is, being that all the mitzvahs are all involving material material things in the physical material world, which the entire material physical world is nothing of nothing, and especially this tiny little action that's happening right now within time and space for a split second, it is so nothing and so meaningless. That's why some people say, how can an infinite God even want these things? A person munching a cracker, like what? How many? Like what's the significance of that to an infinite being? So the mitzvah feels so humble. The mitzvah has no... Not, nothing to itself. And as we said before, 
that the, the gardener creates a magnificent palace for the king, a, a magnificent garden for the king. The acrobat does magnificent, he provides a magnificent show for the king. The musician is playing beautiful music for these things have value. So each one is adding value and that value that the person is adding is, is, is of significance. But the mitzvahs are of no significance in front of God because he's an infinite supreme being and yet he, wa he wants these. Now other than the fact that God wants, there's no other significance to it. There is zero. So the mitzvahs inherently are humble of humble because they have no significance. When we do the mitzvah, the humility of the mitzvah comes into the person doing the mitzvah. So that the person doing the mitzvah should also not feel that he is somebody over here. It should be just the will of God happening without the me over here. That's the idea. That's the ultimate bittle. And that's where God says, if you keep my commandments, I will guard your lamp. I will bring your lamp to its ultimate fulfillment of a lamp. The lamp we spoke earlier. It's a the whole notion of a lamp is its surrender. It's, it, it, it's nullification to the divine. I'm going to bring it and rise and raise it up through my mitzvahs. Your lamps are going to be at the pristine level of nullification. So much so that we're not even going to see any quality in the person. It's as if you're known even exist. There's service without a servant. That's the idea. Now, the final punchline of all of this is, we would think that when you reach such a level of being nobody, imagine these servants who their entire life are serving the king in an invisible form that no one notices the servant, only the, only the service. You wouldn't think that these people have too much energy and too much excitement and too much joy in their service because it's one thing to be a servant. It's another thing to be a servant, but at least you're recognized for the... For the for, for, there is some recognition of your beingness. Here, you're serving in the middle of the night or you're serving in a way that you're, uh, you're, 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 you're invisible. No one even knows that you're there. How happy can you be doing this? This is like working and working and there's, no, there's, not, there's nothing that is... There's no applause. There's no, there's no recognition. You have zero recognition. All you notice is the king, not you. So you would think that this is the most depressing type of life to live. To live... To be a Jew on such a level is the most depressing existence possible. And the answer is totally the opposite. Since the Jew is one with God, as I discussed this in the last class at the end of the class, this is this point, it's precisely when you can transcend yourself so much, so much, so much, so much that you don't even exist even with the tiniest vestige of beingness, You've melted the last, last, last thin, thin, thin film of self that it doesn't exist. It's precisely at that moment that the joy is infinite. The joy of being not is, is, is endless because at that moment of not, you and God are totally one. It's the total opposite of, 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 all, of all thinking. We think that the more we can take care of ourselves, the happier we will be. The true happiness of a Jewish man and a Jewish woman is when they reach this point of non-being. When you're doing a mitzvah and it's about the mitzvah being done and it's not about you at all. And, and again, we go through all the levels that we said before and we negate every check off. We negate every possible self and reach a point of zero self. Nothing at all. That's where the joy is immense. That's where it's infinite joy. That, that's, and that's the meaning. I will watch your lamp. God says, that's... Your lamp, meaning it's, 
That's not a negation of your identity. That itself is your identity. Your identity is when you and me are totally one. And that when, when there is absolutely no more you, that's when you and me are one, and that is you. And that is the uniqueness of the Jewish soul. It thrives on non-beingness. And that's why it's a channel for the divine. And that's why those who don't want God in this world can't stand the Jew. And it's, as we said before, it's an allergic reaction. And Be'ezrat Hashem, very soon Mashiach will be here. And the entire world will appreciate the Jewish people. May we merit to have the lamps lit in the Holy Temple and all of us rise to such a level of oneness with our Creator and oneness and revelation of Hashem's truth through us and with us in everlasting joy and in everlasting happiness. And all the hate will disappear and gone. And there will only be love and light and blessing for everyone forever and ever.